This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Okay, so I'm going to introduce Michael. This is Michael Palm. I guess it's Palmire, isn't it? Pal I got me. it right? Palm. Palmire. Palmire. Sorry, I've yes. not actually asked that. Yes. No, that's... <laughs> um, he's a Tobias to Tobias, and clearly he's going to talk to us about the difference between ethnographic methods and ethnography. Thanks. Great. All right. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, yes. Uh, so, I'm an experienced designer and researcher at Tobias and Tobias and PhD candidate in anthropology and sociology at Curtin University. And today, yes, I'm going to be talking about ethnography. Yay. So... <laughs> So in my years of being trained as an anthropologist and sociologist, I've heard and developed deep understandings of people and social issues in different contexts. But I was always frustrated by the emphasis to stay theoretical, to avoid being passionate about the problem. So I moved into experience design to get away from that and move from insights to action. But design has the opposite problem of being focused on the action and doing. The focus is often on a production of a thing based on very little understanding, if any at all, of the context and people that this thing will impact. Academia gets in-depth understandings with little to no action, while design is mostly action with little to no understanding. Depth, sometimes. Generalizing that. <laughs> um, so depth is something we're often not getting in design research, and adding the tag of ethnographic or contextual to a technique doesn't mean that we're getting the same depth as ethnography. Time, complexity, and depth are all required for understanding why, but we're really lacking them in the ways that we do design research now. So Hormel hired Tanya Rodriguez, an anthropologist, to help inform their strategy and understand how, pa uh, how spam, their primary product, fits into people's lives. She helped them grow their revenue to more than virtually every other US food company. And she did that by spending time with people to understand cultural changes and unarticulated needs. Stripe Partners are a commercial anthropology studio that do ethnography to help their clients better understand how customers, their customers' world, sorry. They use ethnography to understand what's happening now, what's happened before, and to get a better understanding of where things might go. <coughs> ethnography can add value by creating deep understandings that can inform and enable innovation in ways that short-term tactical research can't. It can help us understand the unarticulated needs and core values that drive our choices and behaviour. It helps us really understand why we do what we do. But other ways we're currently doing re design research, putting us in danger of delivering misleading evidence by not taking the time to interpret what we've collected. Are we in danger of oversimplifying whole populations? Are we assuming that past research is in-depth and quality and that we know all we need to? Are we focused on the production of a thing at the expense of the production of knowledge? And is that because often the time frames, constraints, budgets and scopes of our projects are pressuring us to deliver something instead of delivering something of value? So what if instead of just keeping your head above water, I had something that could enable innovative design strategies? What if I could show you how to create deep holistic knowledge with long-term relevance? What if I could help you generate real, in-depth understandings of the people you're designing for and with? You can do all that with ethnography, so 
Let me start by telling you a bit about it. So ethnography comes from anthropology and sociology. Anthropology is the study of humans. Sociology is the study of societies. And ethnography is a way to study humans and societies. It exists as a way of knowing within these disciplines. One literal definition of it is writing about people. So anthropologists used to study humans using information from books, missionaries, and travellers. Ethnography developed as a way of doing empirical research instead of speculating, using assumptions, and relying on other sources. It helped anthropologists understand the worlds of others from their perspectives. Traditional ethnographies would often do things like generalise whole groups based on the words of a few men. Kind of sounds like corporation and government. So the contemporary approach that I was trained in is that of critical ethnography, which sees the researcher as linked to those being studied, acknowledges biases, subjectivity and limitations, and seeks to understand cognition and human behaviour in wider historical, social and cultural frameworks. This approach highlights how human culture is messy, abstractly connected, always in flux, and how we can't really capture facts of human behaviour or the truth. And we can only really capture versions of truth and then interpret them. So ethnography often gets conflated with things like interviews, observation, and research conducted in what we might define as being in context. But that's all about the doing, and ethnography is about the doing and the outcome, the collecting, interpreting, and the end product. It's not about the collecting of details and then just presenting them. It's about examining the details in broader contexts, because it's there that the dynamics that influence our behaviours exist. It's there that we start to dig deep at the why and find the meanings behind the details. This gives us rich insight into things like how social dynamics are changing over time, how identities are changing, what our innate, unarticulated needs are, and how we're seeking to express ourselves, solve problems, and find meaning. And that, to me, seems like a much more holistic way to answer why we do what we do. So where does it all sit in our design process? So on one end of the design research spectrum, we have the more hypothetical, tactical and evaluative research. Surveys, workshops, structured interviews, usability testing, but these often just tell us what people have done or might do. We do important research at this end to validate ideas, test and iterate, and to make sure we're designing products and services right. Qualitative research, on the other hand, excels for its ability to understand why. But at the shallow end of the spectrum, we're mostly getting what, or at best, a very limited view of why people do what they do. To make sure we're designing the right thing in the first place, we need to understand the why. We move closer to understanding why with open-ended interviews, observation, and deeper analysis. Contextual inquiry, rapid ethnography really start doing this by capturing and analysing the tacit embodied knowledge that we can't really articulate. But they can't achieve the same level of understanding that in-depth ethnography can because time and scope still limit the ability to unpack, explore, and surface those deep connections. We often imply that we're working in the deep end of the design research spectrum, getting in-depth understandings, answering the why, capturing innate needs, when we're actually working in the shallow end, validating ideas, answering the what, and capturing hypothetical behaviour. Shallow unpacking reduces the life of our findings because there's only time to connect to the shallow dynamics of fast culture. Our research findings become less about why and more about what when we don't spend time researching, analysing, exploring and connecting. 
So Grant McCracken refers to the shallow end of the research spectrum as the place where we capture fast culture, the fads, the latest thing, pop culture, and other trends that are quickly forgotten. Slow culture is the thing that ethnography unravels at the other end of the spectrum, the value systems that influence our behaviours and decisions, the tacit embodied knowledge that can define human dynamics and practice for generation, generation, sorry, the things that can make a house a home. Understanding slow culture helps us understand whether what's happening in fast culture will fit and stick or if it will just be trivial. I've helped explain complex social dynamics using ethnography. I did a year of field work in Seychelles researching witchcraft, or gligli, as it's commonly called there. And my thesis seeks to better understand how it fits into local identity and culture and how it speaks to the dynamics of things like post-colonialism, globalisation and capitalism. I just want to call out that it was really degrading to reduce my whole PhD to that image. But... um, (laughs) Anyway, so my field work was great, and I learned a lot and had an amazing time. It was informal, loose, and developed slowly. And that was intentional. If I hit the ground running with a recruitment screener, it would be based on who I thought the most important people to talk to were. So instead, I used snowball sampling, where I recruited people based on suggestions of who I should talk to. That meant I was starting with local knowledge, not my own assumptions. I inserted myself into Seishuar culture by doing what I did in Australia. I practiced capoeira, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, mixed martial arts, went to the gym, so I did the same in Seychelles. I approached people, got asked what I was doing, and the people I met referred me to other people and sources, and it all snowballed from there. Some people I spoke to laughed at the topic. Some frowned, some got really excited and told me their own stories. Some told me to be careful that I didn't get turned into a rabbit. Bit cliché. Um, Many people were genuinely scared. I heard lots of stories about sorcerers who could fly at night, who can possess you and can turn people into zombies. And being there with people who believed it genuinely made it scary. My theories developed based on what I found, something called grounded theory, which led me down unexpected paths. I never expected Islam, for example, to be part of the story of witchcraft in Seychelles. But it's now a significant part of my thesis. The two people that led me there weren't recruited, One of them was a labourer helping out my auntie. The other was a guy I was training jiu-jitsu with. They told me their stories and experiences and led me to the local imam. And this was a guy who was conducting exorcisms almost every week, sometimes several times a week. And he was actually influencing the discourse on witchcraft in Seychelles. And if I didn't speak to him, I would have had a massive gap in my research. Now, witchcraft in Seychelles exists as an enabler, as a solution to an array of social and personal problems and as a way to explain events. Many people go to witch doctors for this, but they also used to go to priests and nuns for explanation solutions and even for exorcisms. But the changing attitude of the Catholic Church means it's distancing itself from this aspect of local culture. And now uh, Islam's, Islam's tending to fill that void because it matches the cultural framework better than the frameworks that the church and government are pushing. And having an open, flexible approach gave my research depth, and I found things that I would have missed if I had a a narrow research scope, started with a recruitment screener, if I didn't unpack and iterate as I went, or especially if I only had a few days to do it. And that's another point. This all took time. Time allowed me to pivot, to ponder, to explore, to go on tangents, and to find things that just took time to be found. Things take time to understand, especially complex things, and people are incredibly complex. 
when you're trying to understand people, there's no substitute for spending time with them in their environments. Indy Young talks about how fast works for engineering but not for understanding people. And I went to a great workshop of hers recently where she discussed how for every hour of listening that she does, she spends 10 hours analysing to forge deep understandings. And that's part of the problem because our obsession with doing and productivity has influenced us to think that everything can be done faster and that productivity is limited to the production of a thing and not knowledge. That value is only created when we deliver something not when we better understand something. Now, you're probably wondering what does witchcraft have to do with what we're all doing. But witchcraft is just the subject matter of my PhD. Ethnography, the approaches, the frameworks are all really widely applicable. And in my research, I identified and then developed a deep understanding of issues relating to identity, health and culture that local government and institutions are currently denying, unable to see or failing to understand. And they were things like the repression of African culture that has influenced expressions of identity like witchcraft and Rastafarianism, an aversion to Western industrial medicine and a preference for witch doctors and imams over medical doctors, pregnant teenagers seeking the help of witch doctors and risking their lives to have dangerous abortions because of cultural taboos and the denial of support as dictated by law. Now, I have to emphasise that witchcraft is an evil, it's a service that meets an array of needs. And understanding it helped me understand what those needs are and the deep cultural framework that it's a part of. I didn't expect to find what I found, but by taking time to explore, analyse in depth, and by connecting what I found to broader contexts, I was able to surface and understand all of these problem spaces. And that's the important part, context. Human behaviour is complex. There aren't facts when it comes to why people do things. Context influences and often dictates our behaviour, but context changes all the time and it's not easily defined. A physical place doesn't define context. It's much more complicated than that. We've got our context of thought, what's front of mind, what we're thinking, if we're stressed. But then we've got physical context like the home, the city, Australia. And then we've got, also, we've got some other very complex, hard-to-define contexts, like political contexts, social contexts, cultural contexts, and historical contexts. I mean, right now I'm thinking about how I'm acting on stage here compared to how I play with my two-year-old son at home. I mean, it's a very different context. I wouldn't do the same thing here as I do at home with him. But think about how you might act differently on Bondi Beach versus in Mecca, or how you act in private versus in public cultural norms today versus 100 years ago, or how seeing something horrible in the news can really impact your day. And the list of infinite variables goes on. And there are so many overlapping contexts that impact how we think and how we act. So given all those very, very complex dynamics, how can we ever answer the question of why we do what we do simply, especially with something as simple as a quote? We can't answer simply because it's not simple, which is why we need ethnography. The depth of how we're doing design research now is kind of like the title of an article, the catchy bit. When to actually understand and become informed, we need depth and we need to do ethnography. The actual article, the part that can be a bit dense and overwhelming and that takes time to read. When we present things like quotes without interpreting and unpacking them, we're oversimplifying complexity. It's tempting to present a shiny piece of evidence to validate an idea and assumption to explain why. In critical ethnography, quotes are seen as narratives of broader dynamics. They tell a story. One informant in Seychelles said that 
older practitioners knew more, and that practitioners with darker skin did pure gugu. I unpacked and explored what he said and found a wider discourse on purity and the origins of black magic with black African slaves. He was celebrating blackness, but at the same time he was just being nostalgic, referencing a magical past and the notion of a diluted, impure and fractured Creole culture. My thesis discusses the massive problems with this thinking and how it's actually more about the influence of colonialism and Catholicism. But by unpacking statements like his, I connected deeply embedded thinking to broader context and explained them using social theory to understand why so many beliefs and choices occur as individuals, as a nation, as a culture, but also how other cultures have been influenced and shaped by similar dynamics. If I accepted such statements as truth, my thesis would have mostly been about how witchcraft is voodoo that came to Seychelles with wild devil-worshipping African slaves, which is, of course, complete rubbish. And just think about that for a second and think about the dangers of doing this when we're devising government policies or designing new products and services for millions of people. Like, think about the damage we could be doing there. But I avoided things like that by taking time with deep analysis and research to develop a deeper understanding of why. And that's what we need to be informed my research speaks to individuals, wider culture, other contexts, and my findings will have long-term relevance. All right, so my attempt at some punchy takeaways. Always interpret what you collect. We risk creating false findings when we don't analyze what we collect. Participants can talk about their decisions in a particular context, but they're not generally experts on culture, identity theory, gender theory, and whatever other tools we use to make sense of people. Participants can in part answer why they do what they do, but they can't typically explain how social and cultural contexts influence and inform the choices that they make and tell a fuller story of why, and that's where ethnography excels. Don't try to understand why at the shallow end of the research spectrum. There's a risk when we try to understand why using fast-paced, tactical, evaluative research. And if we stay in that area, we'll get stuck with superficial findings and short-term incremental solutions. To get deep insights for strategic innovation, leadership, and long-term relevance, you have to move to the deep end. And start with in-depth ethnography to understand people first. Cultures are big, messy, complex, and contradictory things. But that's the story of humans. Doing ethnography well makes sense of that. Generating thick data from ethnography gives us deeper, more holistic understandings of why. And we should start with ethnography so that we've got these megaliths of research that create evidence, innovative projects that lead into a multitude of informed and empowered double diamonds so that we can design deeply informed products and services that instead fit into the lives and cultures of people. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from New York's Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.